Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. So we talk about people from history you may or may or not have heard of. I kind of got lost there. That's fine. Yeah. People know what you're on about. <laughs> By now, they should probably know. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Yeah, all right. You got another vest on? Loving have, it. Yeah. Red this time. Yeah, get slowly waking my way through the uh, all the colours. All the colours of white and now red. Next week, I expect you to be like blue or green. Purple, purple art, Joker style. Mm, love that. It's one of my favourites. <laughs> my middle name is actually a, a type of purple. So, Is it? Violet? Vi- Violet, yeah. Violet Beauregard. Yes, that is one of the many <laughs> famous violets that people say when I tell them my middle name is Violet. My mum sometimes has brain scans. Just for fun. Because my mum has a, <laughs> she has like a neurological motor disease. Mm. And so she sometimes has brain scans and you have to stay in there for like quite a while. Yeah. And she does a thing where she picks, like, a famous person's name, like, I don't know, Dan or Daniel, and she'll try and name as many famous people as she can with that first name. Oh, okay. So, like, you know, I don't know, Daniel Day-Lewis, or with me, like, Katy Perry, or whatever. And this, we, we played this a couple of times with famous people's names, and then... You start to like, you know, run out of people that you know, yeah. and, and it gets a lot harder when there's a weird name. So I had a friend called Michaela, yeah, and we were like Michaela, Michaela, and we kept getting really drunk, and we were like Michaela, Strachan. and then we were going to bed. Yeah, then we were going to bed, <laughs> and we were like Michaela Strachan. She was like, "Okay, this game is over. <laughs> this isn't fun for me." That is it, I think. Have you ever been to one of those parties where you have to dress up as something that's like the that's the first letter of your first name. No. Like, everyone has to dress as something. So, there are those parties always happening at my uni. Yeah. And literally, there are, like, three things I can dress up as. Yeah. I can dress up as, like, a knight. Yeah. With a K, obviously. A kitten. Yeah. Or Korea. Korea. <laughs> the state of Korea. <laughs> that's, like, the only... Or, so, like, someone suggested a Kinder Bueno, but that was, like, too far out. I was, like... You got so many things you could dress up. Yeah, like. these a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, yeah, could dress up as Darwin. Yeah, big beard. Why not? That's easy. Yeah, Daniel Day Lewis or anything Daniel Day Lewis has ever played in a film. Yeah, that's kind of a cop out there because then I could. I you're not really supposed to go with something like a person. Yeah, you're supposed to go with like a thing. Otherwise, oh, okay, I could have gone with like Katy Perry or a thing. You're supposed yeah. to kind of go with like a. Either an animal or like a profession is good. I guess I could go as like, is there such a thing as like a knitting professional? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I could go as like a like a ball of wool with some needles in. You go as like a kite. Yeah, that's that's an okay one. Like too. either the bird or the. That's true. Or a bird stuck on a kite. Yeah. Yeah. Except I'd be terrified of myself for the whole thing. Because of my yeah. crippling fear of birds. Do you ever? I didn't know they had a crippling yeah. fear of birds. Mm-hmm. Why birds? So, because they're terrifying, <laughs> they're quite squawky. So they're not really cuddly in any way, but flying. They're though, terrifying. Man, they're like tiny dinosaurs. We said it would be awesome if they were dinosaurs. I wouldn't be scared of them. But <laughs> yeah, no, they're terrifying. It's the way they walk, like you know, the way that they kind of waddle and then flap. Yeah, and then some of them have like really long necks with really sharp <laughs> beaks, like swans and geese. Geese are quite scary. Um, there's at the National Archives. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners, being historians, have been to the National Archives. There's like a big pond in between the entrance yeah. and that and where you are, like from the car park to the entrance. 
and you have to walk past. There's no other way to get into the building except walking past this lake. Yeah. And there's this heron that lives <laughs> on this lake. And swans and geese. The guardians. And ducks. And I'm like, sometimes I get there and they're all on the path because there's like a lake either <laughs> side of the path. And I'm like, how am I supposed to do this? And I just have to wait there like an absolute lemon. And people walking past me looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm there like, <laughs> carry on, please. I'm just waiting for these these swans to well, disperse. If you want to learn, you got to work for it. Yeah, if you want to research your family history, which is what most people do at the National Archives. <laughs> I love the National Archives. I believe they're open again, yeah. but only for digital resources. Yeah, which you can just do at home anyway. So um, You can, but you can only order like 10 a month or something. Yeah, that's true. Otherwise you have to pay for them. And also there's some, obviously, stuff that isn't digitalised. Yeah. Like all the really old stuff. And all the maps, like the really big like maps. Hmm. So there's like two rooms. Obviously, there's a map room which has bigger tables. I even need to go and then back there. The downstairs room. Oh, I love it there. It's so good. And the breakfast, they have the best cooked breakfast. Maybe it's not being served at the moment because of the whole bloody virus mm. thing. You know that thing that we've been dealing with. Um, but yeah, basically they have the best breakfast. It's so it's good. You pay per like element of breakfast, so you can have like toast, so you have beans, you have eggs, you have mushrooms, you have like sausages and bacon. Not for me, obviously, but. And, like, yeah, you can add all the elements together and you pay per element. I am definitely going to check that out next time I go. We should go to the National Archives just for the breakfast. I can't, like, it's really annoying because I was researching something, like, different when I went down there, but I accidentally came across a lot of in- really interesting information. Now I'm like, I-, I don't know if I wrote down, like, where it was. It's really annoying. I think if you use your card to, like, get stuff out, yeah. it records Does the it? I think Excellent. so. You have to log on to your account yeah. and stuff. I found some interesting stuff actually when I was researching, um, like Nazi stuff. Mm. I don't know if you knew this, but back after the war, there was like a kind of fund set up. I think it was East Germany, maybe West Germany. One of the bits of Germany gave Britain <laughs> like some money, yeah, to give out to people that had been in concentration camps, yeah, and you had to apply like with an application form, mm. and. Basically, yeah, all these application forms are now in the National Archives, and oh, you have wow. to describe your experience and everything. But you couldn't apply if you were, like, a prisoner of war prisoner. Okay. You could only apply if it was, like, persecution. Yeah. Because if you're, like, a prisoner of war, if you were, like, in the army or something, then that's, like, a risky take kind of thing. So if you were, like, in the army, but you were, like, Jewish, and then you were, like, captured and then put into a concentration camp, you wouldn't be able to... I reckon there's probably cases where, like, there's some sort of dispute, Hmm. you know. Um, And also prisoners of war were then subject to things that, like, weren't normal. Yeah. Not that being captured is normal, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, like, they were, like, above and beyond what you would expect from prisoner of war camp. So, so So, basically, if you were captured by Japan. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, most well. I think actually because it was Germany, you could only. I might be wrong on this, mm. but I think you could only apply if it was a German camp. But there were all sorts of stipulations, but all these like records are in the National Archives. You can't actually see all of them because some of the people were still alive. Yeah. So you can't like see the ones of people that are still alive, but the ones you can see are super interesting. So, yeah. You know you're hanging out in the National Archives and you're into reading people's application forms for, you know, prisoner of war 
reparation. What is it called? Reparations. Reparation. Yeah. <laughs> Check them out. Um, I wrote a blog on it actually, so you can read that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What I want to go find is a. Uh, they have seems to have quite extensive information, or like. Well, I guess there's only like one sided kind of interpretation, but like about um, Japanese uh, like intelligence services in the lead up to World War Two, which. There's barely anything about like there's barely any books about it or anything, so it seems like it's a quite an untapped resource. But I, just, I need well, to remember I know which file is in. That could write about that, <laughs> hey? You know what I'm talking about? What's the plan? What's the plan? <laughs> yeah. What have you been watching, reading, doing? Uh, we just finished uh, Mrs. America. Oh yeah. Which was fantastic. I really enjoyed cool. it. I learned a lot about <laughs> Gloria Steinman. Yes. She was the only one that I recognised out of it, like, his name, which I feel, I feel terrible. Like, all these kind of, like, women who did, like, so much for the, uh, for, like, the feminist movement in America. And I only knew one, like, one of their names, like, at the start of that. Like, I only recognised one of them. And I didn't really know that much about Gloria Steinman, to be fair. You don't like, have to know about everyone, Dan. I know, but, I mean, like... You can't know about everyone. I felt like a terrible, uh, yeah. Terrible human being. <laughs> Which you are now, Jake. But, uh, but now I've learned, and it was yeah, it's great. So I the thing it. that has improved my life this week um, is University Challenges back. Mm, is it like first episode? Are they new back, though? Yeah. Yeah. Okay then. So they're recording them now, like the. the I don't know. I don't know if they were recorded previously or they've just started recording. Yeah. But it's new series, so yeah. I mean, I guess they all do kind of sit far apart from each other, don't they? Yeah. So, like more than a meter yeah um but yeah it's back i don't think there's an audience so yeah maybe it's yeah was there an audience i I don't remember because usually i'm shouting the answers (laughs) or shouting wrong answers would be more accurate so i didn't notice it i was clapping yeah my like i think like the best i can do in an episode of like uh you know like five five great answers that's that's about about average for me five Um, but there was a video games round okay yeah, which was like um, fake corporations in video games, like the Umbrella Corporation. Oh, nice. Um, which is obviously Resident Evil. And, yeah, other ones that I didn't recognise. And there was, yeah, there was a couple of, like, one of the answers was like a bell jar, got that one. And there was um, interesting flags round, which was, like, impossible. It was a description of the flag in Spanish. <laughs> and I was like... Because it was all countries that spoke Spanish, so I was just going, Mexico? For like every single one, I was just like, is that Spain? I didn't get anything. Like... Yeah, if you just say the same thing over and over again, like, you're going to get one of them, right? Aren't you, uh, yeah, that was the other round I did well on, was the um, Tos Dickens round. Yeah. And they they didn't know, it was like um, places in Dickens books. Yeah. And they didn't know any of them, so they just kept saying David Copperfield. They were like, David Copperfield? David Copperfield. This is one David Copperfield. And none, and of, them none, of, David. none of them were David Copperfield. <laughs> we, just, we came across the uh, Dickens Museum the other day. I didn't even realise that existed. Oh, nice. There are so many small museums. Do you know what I like? I really like the Foundling Museum. Which one's that one? It's not the one... I don't name. It's, it's actually by our uni. So yeah. by Bergbeck, it's... Russell Square Station, oh, so yeah, around yeah, the corner yeah. from there, in the opposite direction mm-hmm. to uni, and it's like a really small building, but really tall. Yeah, and it's got loads of stuff about. So this used to be the Foundling House, so basically women could like present themselves with their babies mm. on a certain day, and 
but like kind of leave them there to be brought up. So like ah. people that didn't, you know, couldn't bring them up properly. Yeah. And it wouldn't always get chosen. It was like kind of quite like whether you were chosen or not yeah. to like um, your baby to be brought up. And then the, the girls would go into service. Yeah. And the boys would go into military. Oh, wow. That's kind of interesting. Or into service. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There's a Jacqueline Wilson book, not a non of like a fiction children's yeah. book, but I still read it about when someone who's at, left at the founding house. Yeah. And yeah, it's got all this stuff. Like, you're allowed to leave like one trinket, like with the child yeah. for them to keep. And it's got all these trinkets in the museum. Oh, wow. And it's got loads of stuff about what the museum did, and it's got artwork. And on the walls of the cafe, it's got like all the names of people that are either foundlings or like adopted or oh god like yeah that's so sad kids. that's like a so on the top floor there's like this random like handle collection that's amazing of I... like handles yeah, yeah manuscripts and stuff i love handles and, and his work so yeah you should go check it out bloody love handle like, i'll check it out yeah yeah it's really good um, um well, that's that... really really cute as well like this little building that sounds really like tragic about the uh all the like trinkets though like those kids must have just like agonized over those things. Like no memory of their like parents. Like, I guess mother. if they have no memory, oh, you'd just be like, you desperately want to know though, wouldn't and you? And this is all you know. Yeah, I mean, before you're sent into the. But going into service, like it's actually like better than being in the street, isn't it? So... I suppose so. Yeah. So you're just going to be used as cannon fodder if you go into the army. Yeah, I mean. Hang on, when was this? Though this is like Victorian. Okay, so it wasn't really any, like wars against uh, like. European There's always a war done. Yeah, but not against European enemies. You were just sent to uh, very unfairly slaughter people in colonial areas and steal their land. Speaking of always a war, should we talk about some wars in terms of my person? Ooh. Who's your person? Okay. This is also uh, Have You Ever Heard Of First, by the way. I know you'll understand what I mean when we get to the end of this. <laughs> Like, the last week was a first, because you did two people. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is another, like, first. Okay, so have you ever heard of George Blake? Uh, I have not heard of George Blake. Okay, so George Blake has been called the most damaging British traitor of the Cold War, and also the spy who got away. Is he one of the group? The Cambridge group? Ah, one of the Cambridge group. He is often confused with being one of the Cambridge group, because at one point he actually was at Cambridge. Yeah. But no, he's not. He's a separate guy. So, George Blake. George Blake was born in Holland. She was born in Rotterdam on the 11th of November, 1922. So even though he's a British spy, uh-huh. he's actually Dutch. <laughs> okay, then. So he's like full-on Dutch. He's got like British parents who are like diplomats or uh, something like that. Yes. So his father was a British subject, mm-hmm. but his father actually wasn't British. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was just a British subject. He served in the First World War, so I don't know if there's something to do with like the First World War, like, giving him... Oh, okay. Maybe he, like, did something yeah. with the British Army or something. So he was actually named George after the King of England at the time, who was George. Oh, yeah. George Fifth. His father actually didn't really, like, communicate much with his son, partly because his son was brought up speaking Dutch, and his father, even though he lived in Holland, only spoke French and English. <laughs> so he didn't actually really speak to him very much. <laughs> Which is a bit weird. How the hell did he yeah, Like, surely he would have learned, <laughs> like, would have learned, like, at least one of those languages. He would think. Well. He would think. But I guess, like, it was kind of that period where parents didn't really talk to their children. There you go. But. Seen but not heard. He did talk to his mother. He's very close to his mother. Mm-hmm. His name is Catherine. And she was very religious. She was, like, a Protestant. 
and George originally, as a child, wanted to become a pastor. Mm-hmm. His father made gloves for dock workers, like leather gloves. So they were okay off until... Actually, what is a pastor? I always hear about it. It always seems like an American term. Like, you never really yeah, know Yeah, like like... it's like an American term for a vicar, I guess. Okay, then. Because it's Protestant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... Okay. Um, yeah, so they were okay off until... The family business starts to collapse and his father actually dies while he's a child and his mother starts to struggle. So they think they've got a great solution for this. They decide to send George away to live with his aunt, mm-hmm. as in his dad's sister, who lives in a palace in Egypt. What the hell? <laughs> I know. So, so hang he on. Goes- her, his aunt lives in a palace in Egypt. In Egypt. And her brother <laughs> yeah. made gloves. Yeah. That's the... In Holland. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So he goes to live in Egypt and they're very rich. I had lots of servants and he was educated well. He learnt English and French mm-hmm. while he was there. Um, just, I mean, and... If only you learned that before. Too late. Too late, mate. <laughs> could have told his dad <laughs> he starts to become like confused about who he is because yeah. he's still quite young is he dutch is he english is he egyptian you know like is he still religious like what was going on yeah, yeah, yeah. he sees all this like poverty as well going on in egypt because he lives in this like palace but on the streets there's like so much poverty yeah. and he starts to become like kind of disenfranchised with the idea of certain things so it's an education in terms of formal, but also an education in terms of, like, worldly education. Uh-huh. Uh, was his aunt really cold as well, in that typical kind of rich English lady way? I haven't heard anything about his aunt in particular, but he was close to his cousin, who's called Henry Curell. Mm-hmm. He was actually the, co- the co-founder of the Egyptian Communist Party, which is interesting. Intriguing. Yes. And um, Curell was actually assassinated in Paris in 1978. Ah. This seems so, to be a kind of like quite a common theme that like really rich people end up being like high ranking, yeah, in, in the communist, various well, communist parties. Guess we'll see. So, the war. Uh, in 1939, Blake goes back to Rotterdam to try and find his family hmm. to continue his education in Holland. But his family have actually moved to like near The Hague. Mm-hmm. Oh, and ooh, bad choice. Well, so he's staying with his grandmother in Rotterdam, and that's when the bombing starts. Oh, hang on. Which like one was that fl- flattened? It wasn't... Oh, no, it was Rotterdam that was flattened, wasn't it? Not... Lots of places were flattened. Yeah. But so the bombing starts, and he decides that he's going to go to The Hague, right? Mm-hmm. So he's starting to make his way there. And as he's on his way there, his mother, who is, you know, loves him very much, has a very hard decision to make, because the last, like, ship is leaving for England. Mm-hmm. And she has two daughters with her, so she decides to take the ship and and um, Blake's sisters mm. on the boat to England, and then he gets to the family home and they're not there because they left for England. So he decides that he's going to join the fight, and he joins the Dutch resistance. He cool. sets off through France and into Spain, so there wasn't much he could really do in Holland. Um, and by 1943, he was headed for England to meet with his family. Oh. So he gets to England... And he's recruited by the MI6. <laughs> so basically his resourcefulness of being able to like go from Holland and reach England has like really impressed them somehow. <laughs> Usually like it's your name, like family name that gets you yeah. into the MI6, but not in his case. He's like an unusual case. So he gets there and he actually changes his surname. So his original surname 
was George Behar, mm-hmm. but now he's George Blake. Yeah, okay. So a couple of things about his like initial time there. Um, one of the typists um, says that her name is Iris Peak. Says that they used to have to say they worked for the Foreign Office, which is funny, seeing as the Foreign Office is in a different building to the MI6. So if anybody saw them go in, they'd be like, "That's not the Foreign Office." Was that based? In, it, can't, it wasn't based in the same place, was it? Like now, that building's way too modern. What the one in Victoria? Yeah, the one that got blown up in Bond about a thousand times. No, I don't actually know. I think it's it was in more in Bloomsbury area. Okay then. Yeah, I think it's more those like tall kind of Peter Pan buildings yeah. in Bloomsbury. Um, he also had like an official quote unquote job in the navy because mm-hmm. he can't like say that's the one Some of the people he worked with that I've seen interviews with said that he talked a lot about religion still during this time, so he's still really interested in religion. Mm-hmm. So he says that he was dropped into Holland several times, but he never actually was. That was just like him boasting. But he did go back when the war was over um, to The Hague just for a few weeks to do some work. Mm -hmm. And basically, like, Holland was ruined. Like, everyone was starving. They used to eat tulip bulbs for food. Like, it was not his how he imagined his home at all. Like, it's completely different. Yeah, it got pretty pretty brutal, didn't it? Yeah, state of chaos. They used to, like, liberate half of it and the other half just... Remained in German hands until the end of the war, basically. Yeah. So Blake, like, was thriving in his new job. He really wanted to, like, be somebody. That's what people have said. Mm. And this seemed like a good opportunity for him. He was still quite young. So he was, like, 17 when the war started. So by this time, he's, like, early 20s. Okay, well, yeah. So back in England, the MI6 send Blake and some others to Cambridge to learn Russian. So he's put on permanent staff <laughs> and he goes to Cambridge to learn Russian. He was really inspired by some of his tutors there and began to like admire Russia through his tutors. Interestingly, he chose to live outside of the city, not with his other agents who were also learning Russian. <laughs> and he said that he liked the walk-in. But it also seems a bit like he was already like an outsider. Yeah. So that's interesting. I guess I mean like as you said, like uh, you kind of re- re- relied on your name to get into MI6. So I guess yeah. he would have been with like a bunch of public school. Though he, he did live in a palace, so maybe he would have fit in. The... Yeah, for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> the upper crust. I don't know. I don't know much about like his other officers that were there. There are some other officers that I do know a bit about. So we'll come to them. Yeah. But um, he did say that. During this time, he started questioning what he believed, and he started to believe that free will was not a thing, okay. which isn't unusual for someone who's religious. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And he believes that sins themselves are part of God's will. Okay. So this is another interesting thing because communism calls religion the opiate of the masses, and yet lots of religious people seem to get on board as well. Very strange. Yeah, very strange. But I think you can believe in two things. But when kind of. one like outright attacks the other thing, yeah, it seems uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he says in, in his biography as well that this is one of his decisive moments mm-hmm. is going to learn Russian. So, um, autumn of 1948, Blake is sent to Korea. There's yeah. already tr- there's not a divide at this point, mm-hmm. but there's already trouble brewing between the two halves. Blake was basically had to target a Russian-held city of Vladivostok in the northern part of Korea, which mm-hmm. is there's if you look from south to north, there's the DMZ. Yeah. And then just past that, there's some mountains. Mm-hmm. Those was just past those mountains. So he had to, like, pass through all that bit. Obviously, the DMZ didn't exist at this time, but he still had to pass through that bit, go over the mountains and into the city. And he was basically sent there to recruit Russian-born agents for Britain. 
Okay. So trying to turn Russians. I guess there have been like quite a few uh, former like white Russians hiding out there. Yeah, I mean Russia was like kind of almost in charge. Yeah. Know, imparting that regime on the north at that time. So he was based in Seoul, mm-hmm. but obviously like he travelled around and he was only twenty five at the time. Mm. Living conditions were appalling. They had very little food and human services, even water, and it smelt really bad. Again, becoming more sympathetic um, to the communist regime because of the American regime in the South was also really bad. Yeah. So terrible. he was kind of living there, kind of was turning him against the Americans. Yeah. So on the 25th of June 1950, George Blake was at church on a Sunday and the word that the communists were advancing on Seoul from the North came. So the agents all hurried back to the embassy where they were based and the, the plan was for Britain to stay neutral so they'd be safe at the embassy. Mm-hmm. But going to the embassy was a bad call because actually Britain did not stay neutral and the communists took Blake and his colleagues prisoner. Mm. So one of the people that was his prisoner with this guy called Ed Sheffield who said that they were treated really, really badly. And yeah, he's he lives in Florida now. He spoke about this on the documentary. America launched a counterattack on the North Koreans on the communists mm-hmm. and the bombs actually hit the train car that, that the prisoners would win. Oh wow. So they could have killed them, they didn't, but you know, that was pretty must have been really mm. scary. Basically Blake was now really determined to escape the American attack. Basically yeah. So he tried to escape, um but unfortunately he was recaptured and at first he just said like he he said that he was Russian, but then he actually admitted he was a British diplomat. He was in big, big trouble. He was given food and then told the next morning they decide what to do with him. So this is interesting because he says he did not reveal he was an MI6 agent. He didn't speak any Korean. Mm-hmm. But other people are like, really? That doesn't sound right. Because one, you've been in Korea for two years. Yeah. You must have been able to communicate with him a bit. And also some people think this is where he turned because they just let him back into the camp with like a slap on the wrist instead of either killing him or, yeah. you know, doing something worse so it seems a bit suspicious but he claims that's not when he turned so we can kind of i mean like i guess you can't think about that can you really turn someone just by capturing them though because i mean like once you get back home you're out of danger like no one's gonna be able to get hold of you there are they so you have to like want to to carry on yeah but if they've been like we're gonna kill you unless yeah but you could just go yeah sure i'll help you out and then you go away and go no that is true but then again who knows? Um, so basically, they he returned to the camp and they began this kind of death march through very harsh conditions like snow. I mean, it's cold at yeah. this time. Oh, yeah. And, he was, and they were beaten. And basically, he says, if I had been recruited by the Russians at this time, they wouldn't have treated me that way. Yeah. Like, which actually does make sense. Mm-hmm. The, the guy who let him off, though, was actually, like, really harsh. And they actually called him the tiger, the guy who let him off. So it's just a bit like yeah, yeah, it's suspicious. Okay, so the KGB headquarters was in Vladivostok, mm-hmm. and there's an agent called Nikolai Luenko. Yeah, and he was stationed there to recruit agents. Uh-huh. Um, he isn't mentioned at all in Blake's book, but Blake might have just not known his name. Mm. And very interestingly, Blake visited Luenko's grave one time. Uh. But Blake says that. It wasn't Loenko who recruited him, and it was just his decision to join the Russians. But then again, I don't know. I bet it was like a good cop thing, wasn't it? Like, he'd been like, treated really badly and then just 
kindly Russian comes and like saves him. And then he, like, something it's got him. something around this time persuaded him to move to the Russia. Obviously, he already had this like influence if his cousin was like like yes. communist. Well, Basically, so. someone said um, a quote that I think really like is what it was. He persuaded himself that he'd found his place in communism. Mm. So like he kind of thought you know it's mo- this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So he's like 27 at this time. I mean, I don't know who I was at 27. Yeah, was, so maybe yeah, easily nice. manual. It's been moved around so much as well. <laughs> Holland, Egypt, London, um, Korea, Cambridge—two very similar places. Korea and Cambridge. <laughs> um, okay, so we are back in London because in on the twenty second of April, nineteen fifty three, Blake and six others were released from captivity in North Korea as heroes. His mother came and met him off the plane, embraced him. He was given some money as he got off the plane and told to come in for an interview a few days later at the SIS headquarters. <laughs> I'm just imagining him being given money, like... In a briefcase. Like from an uncle, it just, like, pushing... Buy yourself something nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well done, son. Buy yourself something nice. <laughs> like my uncle Charles used to give me a pound every time I'd see him. Yeah. I'm like, what's this supposed to be? <laughs> Shh, don't take him off. Don't take him off. Just all at once. <laughs> Oh, wait, Uncle Charles, don't worry. So, yeah, the meeting at the SIS headquarters the next day was was really gentle. It wasn't like a grilling, you know, no one thought any of them had been turned by the Russians. And because North Korea wasn't behind the Iron Curtain, yeah, it's not like he'd come from Russia. So yeah. people didn't really think that all Berlin, which was like the hotbed for, for agents. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. they didn't think that he would be turned or anyone would be turned. So they just kind of, let him back in. Um, so Blake starts working on a phone tapping operation. One of the guys he was working with said that he used to turn up and nap. <laughs> and they kind of put this down to him being really tired from being, you know, in captivity for like years. But it turns out he was actually stealing secrets. So Ooh. basically he said he, when there was an opportunity to take photos, he would. He had his own room. And so when the secretaries went to lunch, he used to take photographs of anything that he thought the Russians would be interested in. And yeah give the photos to a KGB, you know, middleman. Yeah. Um, he would get the tube to the rendezvous point and hand over the documents. And the first interview that he had, he said, you know, that was a betrayal. And George Blake very calmly said, yes, it was. <laughs> it's a bit of a weird guy. Fair enough. <laughs> bit of a weird guy. Um, one of his colleagues said he was very jolly and he just talked to you. And they'd have lunch together when he wasn't stealing documents at lunch. <laughs> so, have you heard of the thing called the Berlin Tunnel? Um, I hadn't. No. So I'd be searching him. So, basically, the principal focus of the time for MI6 was Berlin because it was like a hotbed for rival spies. Like, all the spies were in Berlin. Uh-huh. If you're in Berlin, you're a spy, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, yeah. But they started realizing that just agents weren't coming in and they needed to start employing some technology. So, Christmas. 1955, there was a top-level meeting was held to discuss ways of tapping into the Berlin phone system so they could listen to Russian telephone calls. Yeah. Blake was there, obviously. So so is this like the invention of phone tapping? I don't know if it's like the invention of phone tapping, but, I mean, it's one of the, like, early use of phone tapping in, like, intelligence. So there's a guy called Bill Harvey was this American guy. He was in charge of this thing with Mm -hmm. another British guy. And someone described him as rarely sober. Like, he had three drinks at lunch, two doubles and a single. <laughs> That's just everyone at that time, though, wasn't it? Um, he had the idea for the Berlin Tunnel, this guy. 
and he was the chief of the Berlin base. So the Berlin Tunnel basically was, it was going to be a tunnel underneath Berlin mm-hmm. where they'd run a cable um, through the tunnel so they could tap into the Russian phones. So it was Blake's job to take the secret minutes during this meeting and he passed everything to the KGB. It wasn't a very, very long meeting because they were looking for the best place to dig said tunnel. Blake photocopied all the minutes, takes them to the KGB handler and hands them over on the top deck of a London bus. Oh, which is cheeky bastard. <laughs> cheeky indeed. <laughs> Every time I ride a bus, I'm going to be like, was it this far? <laughs> so the cable was run down the side of like a Berlin road and the Americans built like a low factory on the other side of the road where they could lay some of the phone cables so it didn't look very suspicious. Uh-huh. And they actually put up like antenna on the building to make it look like they were tapping like broadcasts. But okay. actually, they were tapping phones. So yeah, it's like a little bit of uh, mm, misdirection. There. Yeah, I like Slight that. hand. I like that. So there's a guy called Peter uh, Montagu, who was the guy that Blake used to go to lunch with, and he said that he was in the tunnels and you could hear the tanks like rolling across because they weren't oh, like wow. super deep, but they never fell down or anything. Yeah, yeah. So they started to hear the Russian voices and cables from the telephone, and they were trying to intercept like the Soviet army um, headquarters, which were in East Berlin. Mm-hmm. The KGB didn't tell the army about the tunnel because they didn't want to, like, Blake's cover to be... So they were, like, yeah, just letting the English basically have... The British have secrets for, like, a year. Oh, interesting. Um, because they didn't want to Blake's cover because it was so useful. But on the 2nd of April, 1956, they staged the discovery of the tunnel. Like, in this, like, <laughs> pantomime thing. That, like, all, they gathered all the media and they, like, dug the tunnel up and <laughs> completely milked it. Um, but because it was like a year later, the CIA had no idea. And the SIS, they were like, oh no, they just found it. Weird, huh? I guess that's a game that like intelligence always has to play, doesn't it? It had to do it. Like, that had to happen quite a lot during World War II, like pretending that they hadn't figured yeah, something well, out. Exactly. Like, allowing things to go wrong. Allowing like... Yeah, absolutely. Battlefield um, defeats, whatever. And the... In the like top secret documents, which are obviously now around, they said it was unfortunate beyond their control because they didn't consider someone could be a spy. They were like, yeah. oh, that's very unfortunate. It's like, <laughs> or oh, someone's a spy. <laughs> so in terms of personal life at this time, he had a girlfriend called Gillian. He originally said that he didn't want to marry her. And some people mm-hmm. wondered like, if this was because he'd have to be betraying her. Yeah. But he eventually did marry her. Her father was like a senior guy in the MI6 and there's some speculation over whether the KGB told him to marry her because that could potentially lead to more SIS secrets. Yeah, I don't doubt it. That seems to also be a common... common Yeah, apparently that was like common. So, back in Berlin, he brings his new wife to Berlin and there are some offices that he's working in for the MI6 Right next to you know Hitler's Olympic Stadium, that kind of Nazi oh, yeah, yeah. architecture, right there. The Berlin Wall wasn't yet built, so it was quite easy for Blake to like go back and forth between uh-huh. the West and the East. He handed over a lot of material during this time, and he said himself, "I can't tell you how much because it was so much." Wow, no one's <laughs> he was like, wiser. The, wiser. You know when someone says, "I can't tell you that," it means that I can't tell you that. But the way he says it is, "I can't tell you that." Because it was so much. That <laughs> I, just, I, 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 I literally can't, I literally can't tell, can't you, tell like, you. I have no idea. It was I just don't know. Tons. It was just too much. 
Um, some people say like maybe it was like thrill seeking you know he's like I know something you don't know kind of thing <laughs> and also Gillian in retrospect has said that maybe it's like a control thing so yeah. he's like he knows all this info and so he's like and also what was he doing I did wonder what he was doing with all this all papers. that time all those Russian friends he had with <laughs> one of Blake's informants was a guy called Horst Ifner basically this is actually really funny I, I thought it was funny probably not so funny for all the people that were hurt by this, but basically his wife, Horst Hickner's wife, was also an agent. And she got really annoyed with him flirting with other women. And she said to mm-hmm. him, if you don't stop flirting with other women, I'm going to go to the police and I'm going to tell you, tell them that you are a double agent, right? Or an agent or whatever. <laughs> That's one hell of a threat. He didn't stop flirting. So she goes <laughs> to the police and tells them that her husband's an agent. <laughs> Woman's good on her word. And this was the beginning of the slippery slope to Blake's downfall. So, ah. also, just while on the subject of Berlin, apparently Blake had also betrayed nearly every single British agent that was in Berlin at the time. Oh, boy. There's a lot of agents. Like, how, how, like, how, how, how bad are these betrayals? What are we talking here? Like, we'll kind of get Just, to like, that. giving away the secrets. Or, like, well, are some of these guys, like, been killed? He said, like, you know, basically... Well, we'll get to that, but like he said, anything that they thought they'd be interested in, and he also gave names of all the other agents. So okay. that's not good. But we'll get to the no. what happened to some other people before he's like found out. He gets sent to Lebanon. Okay. So basically, in 1960, he goes to Lebanon, him and his wife and children, because he they wanted him to learn Arabic, um, okay. which at Ooh, the center of Arabic tough, studies. That's a tough language. Yeah, I mean, he already knows Russian, English, French. And Dutch. I hate people are really good at languages. So jealous of those people. Um, there was a it was called the Center for Arabic Studies, which was also called the School for Spies. So apparently, this is where spies went to learn Arabic. <laughs> um, he lived. I'm guessing next it was to... actually called that because that would be that's a terrible name for a school like, for spies. We could call it the School for Spies, but like, mm, <laughs> yeah, no. One of one of my dad's favorite jokes, which he tells a lot, dad joke, is you know there's signs around London that say like Churchill's War Rooms with like an arrow. Yeah. He's like, oh, lucky the Germans didn't come here. We would have known where to go. But yeah, like that's the exact same thing. So the man that lived next door to Blake um, was a guy named Westling and his wife, and they became friends with Blake and his wife, and they had kids and stuff. Um, and Blake started to like drop his guard a little bit because he's in Lebanon. He's away from like the hustle and bustle of London and yeah. Berlin. And he talked about his views on Britain and communism, etc. Mm-hmm. Then back in London, aspiring was captured. So things were starting to kind of bubble up. Ooh. Is this the Cambridge lot? Yeah, this is the Cambridge Those lot. Goddamn Cambridge people. And, he's, and people started to hear about this back in Lebanon. And then at the exact same time as well, there was a Polish intelligence officer who had turned to the British and he, all his information led back to Blake. Ooh. So he had all this information because he turned from uh-huh. Poland. Um, well, turned from Russia, I guess, but he was Polish. So on his last night in Lebanon, he was dancing with Vessling's wife, and he said to her, are you one of us? She had been talking about her views as well, and she mm. was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, don't worry. <laughs> Scratch that, don't worry. So don't ever say it. She, it. you know, she's kind of thinking now, like, yeah. what's going on? And then he bumps into this guy called Nicholas Elliott, who's like um, higher up into in the MI6. Nicholas uh-huh. Elliott says that you need to go back to London for like a new job. Mm-hmm. 
And Blake's like spelling and rap. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm not sure about this. So he meets this KGB handler, and but the KGB handler's like, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm sure it's fine. Go back to London. Uh-huh. Get a new job. So his friends thought he was like being promoted. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to London. He's met by a man called Harry Shergold. And the man takes him on this walk. And then they go through St. James' Park up to Colston Gardens. And this is when Blake is getting worried. To take him into this room, which overlooks St. James' Park. And he is interrogated. Ooh. The interview was taped. And the SIS don't admit publicly that it was taped. But apparently it's been used for training agents. Oh. So Ooh. that's interesting. Um, for two days, they got nowhere. He didn't denied everything. He couldn't be charged. He could have just walked away. They didn't have anything that he could have charged him with without a confession. Then, on the morning of the third day, he confessed in answer to a hypothetical question. They said something what? like, what would you expect us to do if you were us? That kind of thing. And yeah. saying they understood he was under pressure in Korea. And then yeah. he, he just confessed. What? I mean, he doesn't even know why. How how had this uh, interrogation gone up to this point? Were we talking about like slapping around, hitting with like a phone? I don't think I know. I just, think they were just talking, or just some like yeah. yeah, just some just some tough questions. He actually says he was never tortured or blackmailed by the yeah. Russians. He made were made contact himself, and he it was his own free will. He was the one that did it. Um, yeah, and at this point, he told them everything. Yeah. Julian was waiting waiting back in Lebanon with the two kids and one on the way. And then she was told what had happened. Many betrayed agents were being held in Berlin in a Stasi jail, and this oh, man. Stasi okay, jails, yeah. man, like you know, the, yeah, do you know the one famous cool. one I'm talking about? It's like there, like the beds yeah. of wood, and it's it's not good. It's the worst situation. Yeah, I went to the Stasi museum in Berlin. Oh man, not I, cool. I want to go. Um, I'm a bit weird that so, way. <laughs> I want to go to the so, jail museum. <laughs> So he did kind of, like, put people's lives at, at risk. Like, yeah, we're going to talk about that now. Good. So, Son of a bitch. <laughs> he was uh, sentenced. Because he, he confessed there was no, like, uh-huh. trial or anything. He sentenced Because he was bamboozled by a, a particularly <laughs> Particularly <complex> question. <laughs> hypothetical question. <laughs> he was sentenced to 42 years in jail, which is completely unprecedented. And he appealed because it's really harsh Um, but the appeal was rejected and one journalist made the connection to 40 agents portrayed one year for each agent however Blake says it might have been between 500 and 600 agents that he gave names of jeez but the Stasi documents that are available now Mm -hmm. actually say it was around 100 but still that's that's a lot of people yeah like they made a list Stasi of like the most dangerous people and this list is available and some awesome historian the names were blacked out but then he like cross-referenced them with other documents and found out who they were i know oh, that's yeah. awesome <laughs> i love being a historian it's so cool <laughs> yeah so he cross-referenced them and he found out who these people were found out their sentences um in another like cross-referencing thing and <laughs> most of them were either given life in prison um long sentences and the what the women one woman on the list got five years however there's one person on the list unaccounted for, couldn't find his records. He was a colonel, and they all thought that that guy um, had probably been executed. Oh, man. But executions for spying in Germany were really rare at this time. Yeah. But it's just suspicious that they can't find his prison sentence or anything. So it could be that yeah. he was executed. I guess, yeah. Neither side wanted to, be to, to, to do that, I suppose, because otherwise, yeah. 
Blake? Every, everyone was everyone was spying that time. It would just be a massacre. Especially a book. Like, like I told you everyone was a book. Spy. <laughs> Blake actually says that he said, I'm only going to hand over your names if, you know, they're not going to be executed. But that's like me saying to you, like, I'm going to tell you a secret, but you can't tell anyone. It's like... <laughs> So it's, it's exactly that yeah. like but, <laughs> but like high level of that <laughs> do you promise you won't yeah of course, of course you promise that yeah, you won't I won't do anything. anything so Blake was put into Wormwood Scrubs that old chestnut uh, his wife visited him with his new son and stayed with him for four more years but after that she left had enough she'd had enough um, on the like kind of like list of people who were like top and bottom in the prisoner ranking Spies are like at the bottom, like you know, people do not like them because you've betrayed your country. So, but he kind of did make a bit of an impression. He made some friends. One of them was a guy called Michael Randall, who was against his sentence. He didn't condone what he did, but it was such mm-hmm. a long, harsh sentence that he kind of made friends with him. Mm-hmm. And he was in Wormwood Scrubs for protesting, like um, CND protesting. Oh, okay. So he's only in there for that like a year or something. Yeah. And there was another guy called Pat Pottle who was his friend in jail too, also for protesting. Mm-hmm. And the three of them started to discuss whether they should help Blake escape. So, yes, Ooh. I can see your face. So, <laughs> in October 1966, Blake had help from Bottle, Randall, and a man named Sean Burke, who were all free by this point. Blake was on the other side of the woman's scrubs wall, and they threw over a rope ladder, and he climbed over it and got into a oh, getaway wow. car and went to a safe house. That was as <laughs> no. easy as it was. I cannot believe this. <laughs> and I was just like, like no thought a... went into that plan. They were just like mm, rope, rope ladder. ladder. He like smashed his window Ooh, and sawed through some bars. So at some point, he must have had to get a saw. People oh, okay, say yeah, there's yeah, more yeah. people involved in this. Yeah, yeah. But so he smashed his window, sawed through the bars got there rope ladder off in the getaway car <laughs> so basically there's like a massive hunt of this randall and his wife were called by the press within hours and they were like shit police gonna come no the police did not contact them <laughs> even though they are clearly involved blake had like knocked himself out that night and broken his ankle from his like leap out his window or something and so they found like a sympathetic doctor and they knew someone who could get a plaster of Paris bandages Wait, from the so BBC on. Doctor Who set. Like, that is Amazing. where he got his plaster of Paris from. <laughs> that is the best part of this whole story. Also, hang on. He jumped out of his window, knocked himself out. No, no. So he, like, le- he, no he, he, got, he jumped out of his window, broke his ankle, climbed under yeah. the rope ladder, and then knocked himself out. Oh, okay then. So, I was about to say, like, if he was just like, laying on the ground like for about an hour or something, just unconscious, no one found him, like... Yeah, what, that like, would be pretty... Sh- I mean, this is pretty train. shoddy, pretty shoddy, like, <laughs> detective work here. Okay, so they stayed in the safe house for a bit, and then they had to find another flat to use. So they, the wife of the couple was, like, really shook up by the fact that George Blake um, was, like, staying in her flat. She told her therapist, right? Her therapist put it down <laughs> to, like, hallucinations or something and didn't tell anyone. <laughs> Amazing. So funny. So they were hiding for eight weeks in London with everyone looking for him and they did not find him so they decided to make their escape in a van so you know those vans that have like a bed in the back and you can put it yeah. up to make it seats and you can put it down to make a bed oh yeah so they had like a compartment under the bed and George Blake hid in there this is um Randall and his wife by the way uh-huh. and um George hid in there and then their kids slept on the bed 
like on top. <laughs> so it looked like it was just them and their kids on a jolly ride to Europe. So they went, yeah, through like France got to Germany. And the only the first time they was they were infected was in Germany. But they saw the children asleep on the bed and they didn't want to disturb them, so they let them go through. They drove oh, to the checkpoint at uh, East Germany, let Blake out on the side of the road and he walked away and he got to the checkpoint and he said, can I speak to someone in the KGB? And he moved to Moscow. Wow. He was only an active spy for eight years. This is eight years he did all this stuff. Oh, wow. And he gave very so many documents. I mean, an active spy. Sometimes he was like inactive, like when he was learning the language and stuff. Yeah, but... yeah. Or just hanging around in Lebanon. Um. So he moved to Moscow. Uh, Gillian divorced him. So, like a judge like granted her because he'd like, she was in England and he was yeah, there, yeah. so Grant has some sort of like quickie divorce. At first, he was cut off from his children, but they managed to reconnect later on. The KGB were very good to him. They gave him medals and a flat near the city centre. He got a job in a think tank and a new wife, and they have a son. Oh. Louis Westling, he was the guy he lived near Le- in Lebanon with, or near, found himself in Moscow one time, and they went to lunch. Westling said that he was clearly frustrated with the communist regime had failed. And that he asked if he could get a visa back to Holland. But Westling was like, no. Do you know how wanted you are? Like, you need to stay Nobody here. Nobody likes you. Like, you're going to get arrested if you move from Moscow or from Russia. So, in 1990, Blake published an autobiography, No Other Choice, which I have here. Here is The Visual Aid. Oh. The book's British publisher paid him around £60,000 before the government intervened to stop him profiting from the sales. Ooh, he later filed a complaint charging the British government with human rights violation for taking, and it took nine years to decide the case. He was ordered £5,000 in compensation by the European Court of Human Rights. In 1991, yeah, Blake testified by video recording when Randall and Pottle were put on trial for aiding his escape, and they were acquitted. Hang on, when were they? When were they? they were tried was... in 91. What the hell? No. Many years mad. later. Oh. But they were acquitted. Yeah, good. Yeah, the yeah, Randall guy was, is on a documentary. Yeah. Um, Blake, actually, in 91, did an interview with NBC News where he finally said that he regretted the deaths of the agents he betrayed. And you know how I said this was a first? This is a have you ever first because Blake is still alive. Hey. He's like 97, 98. <laughs> and yeah, he's written his book. In His book is interesting. I don't, most of this isn't from his book because I don't really trust autobiographies as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he says in his book, in the introduction, like, this is not an apology. This is mm-hmm. just an explanation. <laughs> he's a bit of a weird guy. Like, weird guy, but I kind of like him in a way. Like, yeah. he's very straightforward. He He's not trying to BS you. Yeah, he knows what he enough. did was wrong, and he did it because of what he believed in. And I, I'm just like, well... He might have believed something that was incorrect, yeah. but who am I to say that? Like, he wanted communism real bad. Oh, and one last thing is that he hates Putin. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, like, how is he funny He now, really doesn't like Putin, but Putin gives him everything. Like, Russia is responsible for him having a comfortable yeah. life, so you can't really say that. Interesting. I mean, like, at that time as well, in the 50s and stuff, I mean, uh, the, the capitalist West was doing terrible things to, like, former and still, like, existing uh, colonies yeah so you can understand why people would uh would be like worried by that I would, i'd be interested to know what stuff because he says like anything he thought the russians would be interested in he gave it over. so what hmm. what was he looking out for like yeah. it's just every time there was a word like russia okay well or kgb or, <laughs> you know he did like a word scan 
so yeah it must have been like really thrilling and really terrifying at the same time yeah um but yeah obviously the fact that he betrayed all those agents like whether it was yeah that's 40 whether it was 100 whether it was 600 like it doesn't matter if you betrayed one that's still someone that could lose their life exactly yeah that's the worst part that's the worst part of it sure especially if they're kind of like they are actually like russians or like eastern europeans themselves or whatever and then their families get caught up in it like there's just so much collateral damage there that like yeah absolutely i mean that's this wife who like (laughs) yeah yeah not a cool thing to find out like no sorry bob i say it's another one of those situations where you just feel like you've just been living a life the entire like time was he just with me to like get like, my secrets like, yeah I do feel sorry for her Gillian yeah. uh, but he got a new wife I don't know if she got a new husband probably maybe but they had like three kids and then he had another son as well but um, so the guy kind of on one of the documentaries I watched the the Storyville documentary by the way which is absolutely excellent just so you know everyone there are like a couple of Storyvilles on YouTube and two of them are like um not complete so make sure you go for the one that's like an hour and a half because yeah. that's the complete one and you can read his autobiography, which is called No Other Choice. Interestingly, there's like an introduction by a guy who wrote a biography of him. So you could go for the biography instead of the autobiography if you want something that's maybe a bit less biased. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and obviously there's other things you can look up if you're interested in this guy. The Cambridge Spies is around the same time. Yeah, and just general Berlin during this time. Is a good one. And uh, watch Americans. The Americans, rather. Even though it's a completely different era. Well, 20 years later. But, but still, it's spies. But it's spies. It's spies. And Cold War and all that good stuff. Um. So what are you cooking for dinner? Well, I haven't actually decided yet. <gasps> I need to, I need to go to the shop and like, buy stuff. Oh, no. Are you going to go to the shop in your bed? I probably am, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to put my... Uh, fl- like, I, whenever I leave the house, I just... I, all, I wear exactly the same clothing. I've, I have, like, one pair of... This could make me sound disgusting. I have one pair of shorts I've worn essentially for the entire like entirety of the lockdown. <laughs> haven't washed them. But that, that <laughs> please tell me you haven't actually colours. washed them. <laughs> I actually haven't. Oh god, it's grim. <laughs> uh, a different coloured vest and the same flannel shirt I wear. Like every time I go to the shop, it's just like, who the fuck is this homeless guy coming in here? This guy, yeah. this Asian guy <laughs> with his flannel shirt every time. <laughs> oh, so yeah. It's pretty cream. Um, I'm cooking spaghetti bolognese with some, yeah, corn, like, um, it's not the corn mince, but it's, yeah, veggie or vegan mince. And, yeah, with mushrooms and tomatoes and other things. Yeah. Very nice. That's going to be tasty. We're going to finish watching McMillions. Oh, nice. Yeah, we need to because it's nearly that- off now, too. <laughs> <laughs> we've got one episode left so i'll probably text you afterwards the fantastic insanity of that program everyone watch it it is genuinely mad yeah it's mad and it's i mean if you haven't seen tiger oh. king watch tiger king first and then watch my millions because tiger king is more bonkers which you haven't seen yet have you no we started watching it we watched like two episodes it's so bonkers oh my God. but now we've uh we've kind of like yeah we've just kind of just like degenerated into just watching taskmaster now because work is hard and we can't be bothered to think yeah and taskmaster is just it's good mind mush television um join us next time for more people that you may or may not have heard of oh and do other things like follow us on twitter and uh instagram at uh have you ever pod yeah and subscribe wherever you listen to this and you can also rate us as well with the stars yeah and try like five of them that'll be good yeah five is five is lovely five is 
Jacob's really happy. <laughs> um, bye. bye.